0: The Abstract Doctors podcast special, The Abstract Veteran Series. Today, Char Gatlin and Dr. Ron Seal speak with Dr. Maya O'Neill. For more information, please visit limbic-cenc.org. Visit The Abstract Doctors for information and in upcoming podcasts. The Abstract Doctors podcast. The doctors are in. Open up your mind and say, Ah.
1: All right ladies and gentlemen welcome back to a, another thrilling edition of abstract veteran series with char gatlin and my co-host here the ever enigmatic dr ron Seal. thanks for joining us today uh, before we get started so the word of the day dar is lunch what did you have for lunch ron what did you have for oh lunch? oh you asked
2: me i'm sorry yeah. um, um, a big one, I, I can I take did, it. I, I did not have a heart healthy lunch, so I'm afraid to say, if uh, Dr. Seafi was listening, I've, I've been bad this week. Uh, but I had, I had—I I must confess, I had an egg biscuit. I, I did put lettuce and tomato on it, but.
1: Um, I had a, <laughs> we had a leftover shoulder last night. I took out the crop pot and I made this big casserole with it, the problem was I made it too hot. So my, my, my wife didn't want to eat it. So I had the casserole all to myself right now, it's sitting over here in the bowl. But, uh, but anyway, conversation for, for another day. See folks, we, we sometimes get off on these tangent because we're normal folks too. We had coffee spilled this morning and now we're, we're discussing lunch. And I will give Ron, he already got one point for mentioning Dr. David seafood So now we're tied. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So with that, we would like to welcome our guest today, uh, Dr. Maya Neal. Uh, and before we kind of get into some demographics and what have you not, um, we're going to, well, you know what, let's just do it a different way. We might as well just just skip all that. Welcome Dr. Neal to the show. How are you doing? Um, Great. Tell us a little bit about yourself, where you're from, what the study is, and you know these differences that I'm seeing in the manuscript of TBI and PTSD, what is it, what it's about?
3: Yeah, sounds good. Um, so I'm, I think it's important for people to know that I'm a clinician in the VA. Um, I'm a psychologist. I um, I see folks in the rural clinics that we have in the VA. So I do a lot of PTSD therapy with veterans. Um, that's kind of my clinical expertise. And then I'm also a researcher. I've been working with um, Dr. Sifu and Walker, um, the folks with the Sensory Limbic study, uh, for quite a while now. Um, and that's what uh, that's what we're going to be talking about today is a, a paper on PTSD and traumatic brain injury. So. Um, you know, I thought I would start out a little bit by talking about some of the similarities and differences between PTSD and TBI, um, and and how we're studying it in this really large, really robust kind of study, which is why we're looking at the overlap between the two. So, um, to start with, this is a study that has um, one of the it's one of the largest prospective longitudinal studies, and that you know, that kind of matters. Um, When you have a really small study, you're not really sure about the findings that you get because it could just be the small group of folks you have. In this study, we have over 1,500 participants, um, service members um, and veterans. Most people are veterans at this point in the study, but we do have uh, quite a handful, close to 20% who are active duty service members too. Um, All the folks in this study have experienced combat Um, And that's really important to note um, because it's a pretty unique sample in that way. Um, The the sample also, most of the folks have a history of mild TBI. It's not a study of moderate or severe TBI. Um, And that's really important to note. Mild TBI is very different from moderate and severe TBI in a lot of ways. Um, You can have some serious long term effects when you have a moderate or severe TBI. Those are things like you know, a a penetrating head injury, or the kinds of things that have a serious long-term impact on functioning. Mild TBI, um, most commonly, um, those symptoms dissipate after a relatively short period of time, but there can be kind of complicated, longer-term symptoms for some folks, and that's part of what we're looking at um, in this study. So, um, we have folks, like I said, everyone in the study, all over 1,500 folks in the study so far, and we're still recruiting more folks, um, all of them experienced combat. Not everyone has a mild TBI though. So it's folks that um, that a lot of the folks do have a mild TBI, about 80% of our folks have a mild TBI in the study, but about 20% of our folks um, offer a good comparison for us and, and don't have a history of mild TBI. No, no head injury at all in these folks. Um, Even within the mild TBI group, um, there are some folks that have numerous TBIs and other folks that just have one, uh, one or two. Um, Sometimes those traumatic brain injuries can occur from things like, um, you know, a car accident or even a relatively minor car accident, a sports related concussion or something like that, um, just an accident or a fall that someone had. Um, That can be in military service or outside of military service. And then we also have quite a few folks that have combat related mild TBIs. so i'll highlight some of the differences when we're talking about results um but let's see the you know one of the things i wanted to start with like i said was talking about how mild tbi and ptsd or post traumatic stress disorder are similar and different um, from each other so i
1: think i think that would be a very interesting way to start a lot of our veterans out there or our listeners if you will i think sometimes have difficulty Differentiating the two, you know, as we discussed yeah. before that the show started, the overlap of the sequelae, the symptology, you know, some of the effects in the community and so forth. I had someone phrase it to me a long time ago, and this is very simplistic. If someone were to take a ball ping hammer and hit me in the head, I would have a TBI. But every time I see that same ball ping hammer, I'm going to have PTSD. And I know that's a very, yes. very simple, simple analogy, but to a lot of our listeners out there, that's, that's, it's, that's a reality. So yeah. please, please continue and elaborate.
3: Yeah, that's I think that's a perfect analogy. Um, I mean, one of the unique things about both traumatic brain injury and post traumatic stress disorder right is that they are caused by an event that happens to you. This isn't like, you know, a lot of people can get um, let's say a a mental uh, a mental health disorder like depression or an anxiety disorder, something like that, it can just happen to you for all different kinds of reasons. Um, but it's not necessarily because something like an event happened to you, a traumatic brain injury is because you get a hit to the head. And what we know these days too, is it's not necessarily just a hit, um, to the head, like with a ball peen hammer or, you know, from <laughs> fall or a, a sports related issue. It can also even be exposure to blast that can do it. And so a lot of our military folks have exposures to blast. So that's something we're seeing much more commonly. Um, With post-traumatic stress disorder, it's a similar kind of thing. Something happens, a very, very stressful event happens. And generally it's the level of stress that um, that is, you know, um, like uh, a risk to your life, that level of stress. Um, So not just a minor thing, not just a um, kind of a normal everyday stressor, but something really significant. Um, And so, So the two disorders, I think, are kind of similar and probably have some similar symptoms because they have um, similar ways of starting, uh, you know, with an event happening to someone. There's a lot of overlap, like you said, um, in the symptoms that happen too for both of them. So with, um, you know, with both of them, you can experience um, kind of a a mood disturbance. You can get kind of depression uh, symptoms or anxiety symptoms. You can feel kind of nervous or jumpy, um, things like that. Um, both of them are also associated with cognitive problems. Um, oftentimes not extreme cognitive problems, especially for mild TBI. Again, PTSD, um, you know, the, the cognitive problems tend to fluctuate a bit. So sometimes it can seem like you're, you're doing just fine and remembering things okay. And then other days, like if you're feeling particularly stressed or you might be triggered by something, then you can really struggle with cognitive problems. So, like I said, there are a lot of overlapping symptoms. Other things we see, um, sleep problems, really common in both of them. And we'll talk a little bit more about that in a minute too. So. Ron.
2: So, uh, just real briefly, tell us a little bit about, you know, what were you you looking to study, you know, that, uh, that, uh, you know, felt was really needed uh, so that we knew more about uh, the interaction of these health conditions and outcomes, um, and, and then and then, what, what are some of the things that you found?
3: Yeah, there's you know, it's interesting because there has been a lot of research on PTSD and TBI and the overlap between the two of them. So it was like, well, why would we want to do that again? And the answer comes down to the the data set that we have in this study. Like I said, you know, it's a really large sample it's all folks who have experienced combat. So we have some really good comparisons um, between folks that do and don't have a history of mild TBI, but everyone has a lot of other similarities. So we can kind of parse out, you know, what might be associated with the, the TBI, also what might be associated with PTSD. What we ended up doing was breaking down our sample into the, the groups that we had of folks that had Um, mild TBI who did have PTSD, mild TBI who didn't have PTSD, the folks that had no TBI history, but who did have PTSD and then those who did not. So we have this four group breakdown where we can take a look at, you know, what are the things that are um, more strongly associated with traumatic brain injury? What are the things that are more strongly associated with PTSD? Um, you know, and all of that in a group of folks who, who have experienced combat so we can get some good estimates of how, how much these things happen for those folks. So that's why we wanted to take a, a look at the overlaps of PTSD and TBI um, and what what other things they were associated with in this particular sample it's like I said it's the biggest um prospective longitudinal study we have a, a really big robust cohort with good comparison so
1: how do you put the uh, you mentioned combat several times and, and i applaud your efforts to have all combat uh, or the majority of combat service members in there i mean that uh you know those are the folks that need help and uh yeah but one of the things that i have seen over the years you know is combat it's defined in many different ways and i'm not sure the the methods that you're using to pick it up i mean as an example you could have a young Young infantry marine and an infantry platoon, you know, executing clearance missions. Uh, used to be called search and destroy, but mission to contact, bouncing across the enemy a couple times a week, versus maybe a 45-year-old reservist who is called up, who's sitting in a porta john at two in the morning, and a mortar round hits, you know, a half a mile away. And I'm not taking anything away from either group that I just mentioned because they're there, they're serving, and they're on the line, and they're doing it for our country. That aside, as you can see, there's a there's a difference. If you will, between maybe that combat exposure, whereas the young marine is probably gets used to it after a while, whereas the is the reservist, you know maybe that was the first you know major trauma experience they had. Now, how do you how do you look at that? How do you define and what do you what do you take away from it for our listeners?
3: That's a great question, and we were really broadly inclusive in this study. So once we said, yeah, we want folks that have had combat exposure. Um, you know, we didn't narrow it down a lot, but we did do sort of a deeper dive in our extensive interviews with these folks. I mean, I've got to say the volunteers for for um, this study are really, um, you know, do a lot. They give a lot of their time and service to this study. It takes, you know, multiple days of, of interviews and assessments. They even got brain scans and things like that. It's really robust data collection. We really appreciate all the folks that volunteered for this study. So. We do ask them a lot of questions, just like you mentioned of what type of combat, how much combat did they see, um, get an idea of how long their deployments were, things like that. So we have a range, but within that broader group of all the folks who've, um, who've experienced combat, like you said, we can take a look at, you know, do these things differ for folks that have more or less combat exposure? Um, people who are, you know, have had multiple deployments versus just single deployments or um, longer deployments, things like that. And those are some things we're still exploring. We did look at that a little bit in this paper, but it was the results were were kind of mixed. In fact, interestingly, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll kind of get at the take-home message of our findings now is that PTSD was by far the biggest driver of um, all the um, the other comorbidities that we saw, these other conditions that people really struggle with. So sleep, pain, depression, primarily those big three, you know, that we're really concerned about with our veterans after they've come home, um, especially they're related to suicide, things like that. I mean, yes. we, in the VA, we take them really seriously. And so it was very interesting for us to see in this research that, um, it was far less to do with the um, the presence of a mild TBI, even multiple mild TBIs, and it was much more driven by the presence of, of PTSD. Um, and like you like you mentioned, Char, um, you know, all the folks that were out there in combat experiences, their lives are on the line, and so it's not surprising that we have really high rates of PTSD, and that that sort of chronic stress of your life being on the line. Um, you know that can cause some of these longer-term problems that we're seeing with chronic pain, chronic sleep problems, um, really high levels of sleep problems. I'll say just very like off the charts high levels of sleep problems. Almost everyone um, with PTSD has has a bunch of sleep problems, um, and and also depression. Like I said, in fact, notably, I think it was an an eight to nine fold increase in depression. For the folks that had PTSD versus the folks that had just TBI alone. So, PTSD is a huge driver of these long term concerns.
1: And then you have folks that kind of fall in the middle. Uh, a buddy of mine, she was, <laughs> it's kind of an odd story. She was 55 years old, uh, activated in reserve. She was a mail lady. She happened to be walking around delivering the mail one day, in Iraq in and I reckon a mourner landed on her. And then it happened again. So, you know, I'm talking to her. I was like, you know, a couple things here. I mean, I know the mail must go through, absolutely. Next to, to pay time to take time off and uh, chow, you know, mail's about one of the most important things to, to a service member. We also advise her to change her mail route, you know, because she going to be walking the same spot, but uh, just a very tough, tough, resilient lady. And looking at someone like herself who is not actively this kind of sums up the argument, I guess, or falls in between who's out there, you know, moving to contact with the enemy versus, you know, the the reference I made earlier sitting in the back. I mean, here she is with it, you know, boom, landing on taking in her age, her background, you know, her maturity level. I mean, she, in speaking with her, she mentored a lot of the younger female soldiers. You know, they nicknamed her grandma, you know, but then again, here's 55-year-old woman out there walking on the line delivering the mail. It doesn't get any better than that. But I mean, to, to someone like that, I mean, what would you, what would you say? You know, because looking at some of the the mean averages and demographics in the study. I mean, this particular individual sort of a little bit, little bit outside of there, almost as an outlier, if you will. But, but curious if you know if you've encountered those people and you know thrown the net wide enough.
3: It, that's a great question, and and I think it's it's spot on. I mean, these sort of things can happen to anyone who serves in the military. Um, no, no one's exempt, and it's why we see probably you know a, a lot of PTSD, um, regard, regardless of people's MOS. Um, you know what. What job they're assigned to? Yeah. Certainly, it's higher um, for folks that have more direct combat exposure. There are certain jobs that are, you know, higher risk than other jobs, and so we see more PTSD and and more yeah, blast related TBIs and things like that in some of those jobs than others. Um, but overall, I you know I think you're exactly right. There are a lot of folks who you know they don't expect to experience these things, whether whether it's the the traumatic brain injuries that they get. Uh, the blast exposures, um, or just that that PTSD can happen to almost anyone in the military because your uh, you know your life is on the line so frequently, even if you're doing a job where you might not expect it. Um, so I think, you know, one of the most important take-home messages, and I hope that that this information is getting out there um, for folks who are coming back, is that you know, I would say the good news is that PTSD is is really pretty treatable. At the very least, you can do a great job of taking, taking quite the edge off of it, if that makes sense. You know, we have done a lot of research in the VA and in other environments outside the VA, too, that we've applied to, um, you know, to the VA research as well. Um, There are interventions like prolonged exposure therapy, cognitive processing therapy, EMDR, you know, a a whole bunch of these interventions, even a variety of others, you know, I I have colleagues who are researching things like um, trauma-sensitive yoga, um, mindfulness-based stress reduction, things that, you know, there are some folks that don't want to do A therapy where you're talking through the trauma repeatedly Um, some you know people might not even know but cognitive processing therapy you don't actually have to talk through the traumas repeatedly to have that be an effective therapy. Um, You can talk through the impacts that the trauma has had on your life, rather than the details itself if that's a barrier for you. So, all these kinds of interventions can be really effective for, at the very least, taking a strong edge off all of those PTSD symptoms, helping with improving sleep, um, just quality of life in general. Um, you know, for a lot of folks, their lives can get, um, you know, very, very, um, I, I don't know, restricted, I guess I would say, because of their PTSD symptoms in particular. Um, and so we can help people build up to a life that they want to be living. I mean, that's the most important thing for all of us, right? Um, it's not for me to yeah, judge absolutely. what that life looks like, but we want to help you get to the life that you want to be living. Um, so that's the important work that that a lot of my colleagues are doing in the VA, um, in particular. So I'd encourage folks, you know, like your friend Shard, to to reach out and um, you know seek services, whether it's in the VA or or other services in the community. Um, get some of those, you know, get screened for, for PTSD. See if that might be a concern for you. You know, people that have had repeated um, traumatic events like that in particular, I think would be at high risk for PTSD. So, um, you know, so come check it out, you know, see if we can offer you some help and some relief.
2: No, I think that's a yeah. great message, Maya, uh, um, because I'm sure that, you know, if, if you're not sleeping well and you're in pain and, you know, you've had PTSD that's been around a long time. I mean, no doubt you'd be a bit down in the dumps, you know, if not outright depressed. And I'm sure it might be, it might, you might not have a lot of hope or optimism that it can be better. But what I'm hearing you say is that there are a number of different treatments. And I believe there's evidence that that these treatments work well too, that, that people can access and start to feel better and it, and it starts with a step and once you take one step and get better you know you start feeling a little bit better then it's easier to take a second step and um you know it's not going to go away overnight but i would think what two or three months perhaps people would start feeling a bit better
3: yeah you know i try to be a little bit conservative when i talk to my own patients and i say Um, you know, we should see some improvement in two to three months. And definitely within about six months or so, you know, a lot of people, um, I I actually like the analogy you gave me, you know, you, you start doing one thing to get better, and it kind of builds and a little bit more. A lot of people come and see me and they say, I feel like I'm spiraling downwards. And so we try to get that spiral to kind of spiral upwards. It's like once that door opens a little bit and you can feel more comfortable um, you know, with doing some of these activities for the, the life that you want to be living, it kind of opens more doors for you and you can feel more comfortable in different environments. That's actually what a lot of these treatments focus on um, is making sure that you know, we identify what are your goals, what are the things that you want to be doing more of, how do you want your relationships to improve, all those kinds of things. And then how do we kind of open the door to that so that it can generalize to other areas of your life? I mean, for, we, you know, we don't want people to be in therapy for the rest of their lives, um, you know if that's not something that they need or want. And, and a lot of folks don't. We wanna help give you the skills to go do this on your own. Another thing you said, um, Dr. Seal, was um, was about taking that first step. And I know a lot of folks, you know, it can be really nerve wracking to like call the VA or, or show up at a clinic or something like that. And so uh, I, I'm going to make a recommendation here. And some of you are going to chuckle because I'm going to, I'm going to refer people to a government website. And I know some people are like, oh, no, (laughs) government websites, they can be such a pain, right? Um, The uh, the exception I found is the National Center for PTSD has a really great website that's very accessible to patients, um, you know, even maybe you're seeing a counselor in the community or your partner um, or spouse has some questions about some of the symptoms you're having. They've got resources for all these folks, right? They even have these decision aids. You can click um, and get uh, get decision aids really e- easily from their the front page of their website and learn about the different treatment options that are available. There's information for folks that have TBIs as well. They can target some of these treatments to folks with TBI, make some accommodations. You know, if you feel like you are struggling with some TBI symptoms as well, or just some cognitive symptoms, um, you know, all of us who do these interventions are are trained to to accommodate specific patient needs with those. So take a look at that website. um, One of my favorite things about that website actually is they have, these videos called about face videos and they're personal stories from veterans and service members who've gone through some of these treatments and can tell you in their own words, what was really challenging about it? What did they not like about the treatments? What were they kind of surprised about? What ended up helping them in the long run? Um, and sometimes for folks, I know for me, it matters a lot when I'm making a medical decision. I like to hear that personal story. I wanna know that this has worked for someone like me. So So check that out if you can.
1: No, that's great. And I, you know, I would echo that sentiment to, uh, to all our listeners out there. You know, if you, if you listen to this podcast, I'd recommend you, you record it and listen to it again, because what you just heard is is what works and to stay with the analogies that we heard about steps and opening doors, I would even posit, you know, the numerous treatments out there are like shoes. You got to try one on, do you find one that fits when you find it, when it fits, lace it up, stand up, start walking, open that door and start climbing out and getting back to where you were. You know, it takes a, it takes a team for sure, not to get into the, the quotes I already did the Vince Lombardi one one time, but you know you're your own best advocate in your treatment. You know if you don't give 100%, you're not going to get 100%. So I think that's uh, that's kind of borderline common sense, I guess, in some ways.
2: Um,
3: it's it's an important point though, and like and to make sure that people know when they come see a provider, you can tell all of us, hey, you know, this is not working for me. This isn't the kind of treatment that's a good fit for me. Let's try something else. We've got a bunch of different tools in our toolbox, and that's our job to share them with you. Um, but you really have to tell us what's a what's a good fit for you, um, and don't hesitate to say that. You know. Um, we can we can sort of say yeah that that makes sense let's let's shift gears a little bit you know maybe you know you think yeah you know that yoga stuff it, it's not for me for some people it works great but for some people they're like eh, no I'm one of those people I'm like eh, no I'm I'm not really a yoga person you know but there are other <laughs> things that I discovered that I could do that were really helpful for me you know I I happened to be a I discovered you know, biking. Um, there's actually a friend of mine who's a psychologist down in Salem, Oregon, um, runs a, a veterans biking group um, through our vet center there. Oh, wow. Wow. That a lot of people say is super helpful for PTSD. So there's not, just like you said, there's not a one size fits all. You know, it is about opening those doors to kind of broaden uh, the range of activities that you're able to do, that you enjoy doing, um, really improving quality of life in a way that works for you as an individual. That's the most important thing.
2: And I would, I would encourage that there are clinicians listening uh, back when I was doing clinical work. Uh, one of the things I used to do with about five minutes left in the session was say, okay, what's one thing you've agreed to do today that once you walk out the door, you say, there's no freaking way in the world I'm doing that. And, you know, sometimes people, you know, would be, would have a blank stare, like, oh, no, everything's cool. But inevitably, maybe one out of three individuals or couples would start laughing, you know, and say, Well, actually, you know, I just, uh, I don't think I can do X. And I'm like, I'm like, tell me, we got a lot of things we can try, you know, if that one's not going to work for you. Forget about it. We'll try something different. Um, And I think, uh, you know, sometimes it's hard for people to come in, see a professional, know, they're smart, know, they're trying to help and to say, Yeah, that's not (laughs) that's not me, that's not my thing. Um, So, you know, encourage people to say what's going to work and what's not going to work when you're, uh, you know, when you're with the clients.
3: Yeah, definitely. I I strongly agree with that.
1: No, no, it's been, uh, I I have a friend of mine, Ranger Airborne, hardcore colleague, and and he bakes cupcakes. So that's what that's what works and he ate a lot of cupcakes too but now he's running again and he's getting he's getting back, back in shape but hey it's different strokes for different folks and you have to find that thread you know that, that gets you through it no doubt about it well Dr. O'Neill it's been great having you on the show today for for sure and you know once again uh, and on behalf of all the listeners and the cast and myself you know thank you for that information and thank you for what you do thank you for I mean, I understand research and this that and the other but you know you're down there in the fight and on the line as well and I think sometimes that goes without being acknowledged and I would like to acknowledge your you know your participation to to the fight and the fight is the you know helping people and and hopefully you know figuring out you know the puzzle that is TBI and PTSD and uh and assisting people to get their lives back on track so from the bottom of my heart definitely it's
3: it's an honor it's an honor to do this work it's an honor to work with the veterans whether it's in the context of uh you know of these studies that we do the folks who come in and And donate their valuable time and experiences to help other veterans. I mean, it's just an honor to work with folks like that every day. And, um, you know, I'm really glad that we can try to do some outreach through podcasts like this, you know, try to bring more folks in and get them connected with some good care. Um, Hopefully, you know, like I was saying to you before when we were chatting about this podcast. Um, I take a cautiously optimistic approach. You know, this doesn't mean it's an easy route for people, but I want to leave people with some hope that we do have some good interventions, um, both for TBI and for PTSD um, that can at the very least take a strong edge off a lot of those symptoms they might be experiencing. So come try to connect with us. Um, You know, if one provider doesn't work, find someone different. If one treatment doesn't work, find someone different. you know, hopefully that's that's the reason we're doing a lot of this research is to to figure out what other options we might have for people. So thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate Very
1: it. Very welcome. And make sure you give us, you know, any contact contact, contact but uh, link information or what have you not. We'll be sure to distribute it, disseminate it. So for those of you out there that are listening, if you, if you need help, you know, these folks may not have the answer, but they can definitely point you in the right direction. You know, so it, as I said, let's get the ball rolling out. But thanks again for having you, Dr. Uh, O'Neill. Wish you the best of luck. And, uh, you know, hopefully we'll see you on the show again down the road.
3: Definitely. I'd love to. Thanks, y'all. All
1: Hi, right, very well. All right, folks, that's a wrap here on our latest and current edition of the Abstract Veteran Series with co host Char Gatlin, Dr. Ron Seal, and the behind the scenes team that keeps the machine that rolls these podcasts to going. Miss AC, the Colonel, and Ron in the box up top. So until our next episode, be safe, take care. And on a serious note, folks, if, you, if you're having problems, reach out and talk to someone. If you can't call someone, just it, it takes a team and it takes you to get the ball rolling. So with that, be safe and we will see you next episode. Take care.
0: Thank you to Dr. Maya O'Neill for joining Char Gatlin and Dr. Ron Seal today on the Abstract Doctors podcast special, the Abstract Veterans Series. For more information, please visit limbic-cenc.org. The Abstract Doctors is produced by The Abstract Athlete. For more information, please visit theabstractathlete.com. And as always, follow us on all of our social media platforms under The Abstract Doctors and The Abstract Athlete. The office is now closed, but join us for our next appointment soon.